want you to think back to your childhood, because when you're a kid, you have fears, right? When you're a kid, you have fears of the dark. Uh, you have fears of, of thunderstorms. You have fears of, of getting shots. Uh, you have fears of clowns, right? Uh, some of you, if you've got kids right now, you understand this. Probably in the last 15 years, this has become a big fear for kids. Automatic flushing toilets. So like you got to put something over top of that when your kid's using the bathroom or they just kind of freak out. But, but kids have all kinds of fears, but so do we as adults. Uh, in fact, I was reading something this past week, a couple of days ago, and it said that it used to be that the number one fear for adults was death. But now that's actually moved to the second fear. The number one fear for adults is failure. And many of us have that fear, right? We fear failure. We, we fear death. Uh, we fear sickness. Maybe for some of us, we, we still fear clowns, and there could be a few in here that actually still fear those automatic flushing toilets. I don't know. That's totally up to you. But fear is real, and, and no matter whether we're a child or we're an adult, we feel in a sense and have these fears in our life. But think about who helps us as a kid get through those fears. It's usually a parent. It's usually someone in our life that, that's invested in us and encourages us in those tough times when that fear is present. But it's the same thing with us as adults. We need people in our life that can encourage us when those fears are there. And so this morning, as we continue our series called One Hit Wonders, we're going to look at a lady that um, helped this individual, helped really this, this, this nation that was full of fear and led them in such an amazing way that God brought this incredible victory to them. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to sharing that this morning. But before I, I get to her story, let me give you a little background here about uh, the context of what we're looking at. Because I, I want to kind of share with you the, the government setup for the nation of Israel before we get to our story today. Because that kind of helps us understand this a little bit better. God chooses Moses to bring the Israelites out of Egypt from slavery. And so Moses leads them into the promised land, they go, or leads them into the, the desert, the wilderness. He does this for 40 years, finally gets them on the cusp of the promised land, and God's like, thanks Moses, but you're done, your life's going to end, you're going to come hang out with me here in the not too distant future. I've picked Joshua to now be this leader, to lead the people of Israel, lead my people into the promised land. And so that's what Joshua does. Joshua leads the people of Israel into the promised land. Now, there were actually people living there. It wasn't barren. It wasn't like there wasn't anybody there. The Canaanites were there. And so they had to go in and fight and battle to get into there so they could take over this particular land. Now, in the time that Moses was leading, they actually broke this nation into 12 tribes. And so you, you have these different tribes. They really sort of function as states. They kind of oversaw themselves. Um, they, they kind of took care of themselves. But the reality was there wasn't a, a king or a queen or some sort of royalty or elected officials that were in charge of this whole nation. It was known as a theocracy, which meant God was that king. God was that ruler. Now, the people could take care of their little sections, their, their tribes, but other than that, God was the one that took care of everything else. Well, well, how do you connect with God when, you know, God's not, like, physically in, in front of you all the time? Well, these judges came into these roles of leadership after Joshua, and for about 300 years, these judges led the nation of, of Israel. Now, what was their job? Well, their job was pretty simple. They had basically two main roles. Their first role was to arbitrate any kind of intertribal disputes that were happening. So if there was battling going on between a couple of tribes, 
they would come to this judge, and the judge would say, hey, you know, here's what you should do. Here's what God's saying, and, and they would hopefully change things. But their other role was to make sure that people were loyal to God, that they were continuing to be focused on God. Now, some of these judges did a great job of this, and some of them, they were horrible at this. But those were their main roles, deal with disputes and to make sure that you were connecting people to God. And in the midst of these judges, we have this period around 1200 BCE where this one judge, Deborah, comes into this leadership role. Now, if you understand a little bit about uh, what we find in Scripture and what we read about the, the nation of Israel, a very, very patriarchal society. Women were second-class citizens. They were looked down upon. And yet, in the midst of even that context, we find this incredible woman who jumps into this, this role of leadership. Now, it wasn't like they voted her in. She was just appointed, and maybe she was appointed by God. I'm, I'm not real, we're not real sure about that, but she gets into this role, and she is one of the most incredible judges that we find. And so we're going to spend our time this morning, we're going to spend our time talking about this judge whose name is Deborah. We read about her in, actually in Judges 4 and 5. We're going to focus on chapter 4 today. But here's what it says, looking at chapter 4, starting with verse 1. It says, After Ehud's death, and he was another one of the judges, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth Hagayim. Sisera, who had 900 iron chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. Let me take you back to Joshua just for a second, because when Joshua leads the Israelites into the promised land, it wasn't like the Canaanites said, hey, you've got hundreds of thousands of people that you want to bring into this land that we oversee. You, you want to come in and take our resources that we already use? Come on in, right? Here's some swag bags for you as you come in. This is going to be wonderful. It wasn't how this played out. They battled, they fought, there were wars that were there. But even after that, there were still these tensions that you would find between the Canaanites and the Israelites, even though Israel had really overtaken this land. Now, as we see here in what we just read, Israel, and if you know much about Israel, Israel's going to Israel, all right? Which means... <laughs> They were kind of on this roller coaster ride with God. So there were these moments where life was great and they were connected to God and everything was going wonderful. And, and then they'd hit these valleys. And the reason they'd hit these valleys is because they were doing evil. They weren't following God the way that they should have been following God. And so what God would usually do in those moments, he would turn them over to some other nation. What we find here is that they've been turned over to the nation of Canaan. For 20 years, Israel has been oppressed by this king and by this nation and by this particular general, Sisera. He, he led this Canaanite, Canaanite army. Uh, he was a beast to defeat, uh, mostly because he had these 900 iron chariots. And kind of put that in perspective today, it's kind of like our tanks that we have in our military today. Very much the same kind of thing. Very advanced technology for that day. And so he brought fear to all the people that were around him. And again, into this, we meet Judge Deborah, verse 4. It says, Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judge in Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites would go to her for judgment. Here's Deborah. She's doing her job. Her job is to deal with these intertribal disputes, keep the people focused on God. But not only is she a judge, not only do we find here in a little bit she's a military advisor, not only is she a leader, she's a prophet. 
And so God would come to a prophet and God would say, hey, here's what I need you to tell this person. Here's what I need you to tell this group of people. Go tell them. And the prophet would say, sure. And they'd go tell that person or the people what God had just told them to tell whoever that may have been. And so God is going to come to Deborah and tell her something. And, and God tells her something about this military mission. Look at verse 6. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor. And I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. They've experienced this oppression for 20 years and God comes to Deborah and says I need you to go connect with Barak so that he can lead this military mission that I have it's time for this oppression to end we will fight and in the end because I'm God Israel will have a victory now you would think Barak is some sort of military leader you would think that, that he would be sort of an important person if God says, this is who I want you to pick to go lead these, these warriors. But here was his response after Deborah gave him this information. Here's what Barak said. He said in verse 8, I will go, but only if you go with me. Now, we live in an area, as we know, that is full of military personnel. Uh, we have a ton of military families here at The Journey. We have people that used to be in the military and, and aren't anymore, but, but led in the military. I mean, we see military leadership all around us. Now, when you, when you think about the people you work with, people you know that are leaders in the military, you're usually thinking they're pretty strong. Now, now I'm not talking about physically. I, I'm just talking about mentally. They're, they're, they're powerful people that when you say, here's a job, go do it, guess what? They get it done. Here's this guy, Barack. Deborah comes to him and says, we've got a mission. God has given this. We're going to win. Go make this happen. He goes to her and is like, can you go with me? I mean, there's a sense of caution there from him, the sense of, of hesitation. And, and I think probably more than anything else, there's fear. Because he says, I will do this only if you go with me. As I see this part in this section of what happened here, it reminds me that fear can keep us from moving forward. That fear can keep us from, from moving forward. Now, where does fear come from? Fear comes from our experiences in life. Fear comes from uncertainties in our life. It comes from the unknowns in our life. And, and many times we'll make decisions or not make decisions based on this fear that we have in our lives. Here's Barak who has said, hey, you're going to go lead this warrior nation. You're going to lead these 10,000 warriors into this battle. God's with you. You're going to win. And yet we see all kinds of, of fear for him. Now, maybe it's because he's had experiences already with this particular general. Maybe he's lost some of his military before because of battles with Sisera. Or maybe he's heard from other people that are part of his little you know, connections that he have, his military leaders, and, and they've talked about their experiences and how they lost. Or maybe it's been other nations that he knows have been annihilated because of, of this general and this incredible technology that he has, these, these chariots. Could be any of those things. Whatever the case may have been, there's fear there from this Barak, even though God's in the midst of it. 
Again, not quite what you would expect for someone that you would kind of pinpoint as a military leader. And Deborah's probably sitting there like, who picked this guy to be in this role? I mean, we could have done a little bit better than this. But that's what fear does. Fear incapacitates us. Fear keeps us from moving forward. Fear keeps us from being our best. That's why I love these words that Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. Paul writes, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. When we see that, Paul is writing to this student of his, someone he's mentoring, someone he is coaching, uh, this guy named Timothy. And based on what we see before this verse and after this verse, something's happening with Timothy. Now, more than likely, it seems like he's afraid to actually share his faith in Jesus with a group of people, or, or there's something going on with him in this, this new role as being a pastor. Something's there. Well, Paul tells him, he's like, hey, Timothy, this fear that you have, this, this timidity that you're feeling, now the actual word there is cowardice. He's calling him a coward. He's like, you're not doing this because God has put this fear in you. This is coming from you. This is coming from your surroundings. This is coming from something else. Because God, when God's in something, God doesn't give you this, this spirit of fear or cowardice. God gives you the spirit of power and love and self-discipline. When God's involved and God is leading us, sometimes that fear is there. And you wonder, why is that still prevalent in our life? Well, again, it could be experiences or the uncertainty, the unknown, whatever it may have been. There's something there. But when God calls us to something, that fear shouldn't be there in our lives. And yet we feel this fear around us. See, fear brings failure, whereas faith brings us a future. See, fear, and I think if Barack had taken off and said, okay, I'll go do this, I, I think that fear would have been there. And, and I don't think he would have led them to victory. Because I do believe, I think fear over time, it can lead us to failure. But when we have faith, it can lead us to an incredible future. Barack didn't have faith, he had to fear. Deborah had faith. And here's Deborah who says, hey, God is in this. And because God is in this, we will have a victory today. I wonder if we're more like Barack or if we're more like Deborah, because I know that fear can keep us from moving forward. Well, our story continues on. Verse 9, it says, very well, she replied, I will go with you. And I love this part of the story. She says, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Caesar will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. And Kadesh Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him. Deborah also went with him. I, I love this because Deborah goes to Barack and is like, all right, here's the deal, dude. I, I'll go with you. But in the end, we're going to win, and nobody's going to care about you anymore. You're not going to get any glory in this. A woman is going to get glory for this victory today. Now, again, in that society, very patriarchal, this is kind of a weird scenario that's playing out here. And yet here's Deborah who's seen as this incredible leader. She's now being seen as this military advisor. She's seen as someone that's needed for support for them to win. She is really there to encourage Barack that he can go and do what God has called him to do. And so he hears what she says. And Barack goes out and grabs these 10,000 warriors and they head out to fight. 
as I look at these words here from, from Deborah in verses 9 through 10, um, I understand, I realize that you and I, we need people who can encourage us. We need people in our lives that can encourage us. Barack says, I will go, but I'm only going to go if you go with me. And I feel like these words that she gives him, even though they're a little tense, right? At the same time, I think she's saying, hey, I'm here for you. I will do what you need. I will encourage you and support you and, and help you in this tough time. When you and I have fears in our life, one of the things we need more than anything else are encouragers that are there beside us. Those people who can support and help us in those, those dark days, those valleys we may find ourselves in. For instance, let's say you lose your job. And you're trying to figure out what's my next step here. I mean, am I going to be able to find another job? How am I going to take care of myself? Or, or how am I going to take care of my family? There's this, this tension that we feel, feel this, this fear. And you know what we need in those moments? We need an encourager that can be right there with us. Some of you, you have lost uh, children in pregnancy. Uh, our family has experienced that twice in our lives. And uh, if you've been there before, you know how hard that is and how, how tough that is to take your first step after that. You, you know how tough that is and because you, you feel this fear. You have this fear of what are we going to do? Is this going to happen again? And you're pregnant again and there's all these fears that are there. Here's the deal. What you need right then in those moments are encouragers around you to help support you in this tough time. Or let's think about the last 16, 17 months midst of this pandemic, we know that mental health issues have become a huge part of our, our world. And so many of us, I mean, let's be honest, maybe every single one of us, we, we've struggled some ways mentally because of what we've had to experience, and we've experienced this together. But in those tough times, and maybe you've had this, but have you had people in your life that, that known that you struggled in this way and have been there to encourage you, just to, and, and they encourage you just by listening to what you have to say? Where you can share what you're going through and, and where you are and, and what you're feeling. We need encouragers in our life. Because encouragers can help support us when, when life is tough. They can be there for us when we're down in those dark places. And it's so important to have encouragers in our life that can walk that path with us. That's why I love these words from Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. He says, so encourage each other and build each other up, just as you are already doing. And I love these words because he's speaking to a church. He's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to encourage each other, build each other up. And he even says here, it looks like you're already doing that, but keep doing that. In the church world, we can become so much like the world around us. We, we can get so focused on the negative stuff that we'll start hitting each other with negative words and thoughts, or not thoughts, but comments and posts and everything you can think of. The church should be the one place where we are always encouraging each other and building each other up. Because there's nothing better that we can do than to help and encourage each person that's a part of this place or other churches, other followers of Christ. That's what we are called to do. We are called to encourage each other. And so that's why I'm pretty excited about this fall. We are doing something a little bit different for our small groups. Uh, maybe you've been in other churches, life groups, connection groups, jail groups, whatever they call them. 
But, um, but for small groups are important to, I, I think you would say so for almost every church that's out there. Now, my feeling is, and my very strong opinion about this, is that groups are great and important for building relationships with other people. Like, that's my number one thing. I want you in a group because you can build relationships with other people. Now, I know some people are like, but it should be a place you go and you grow spiritually. I'm like, I totally agree with that. But I think that spiritual growth comes because we build relationships with other people. We get to know them and hang out with them. We get to, to trust them and believe them. And we get to listen to them. We get to debate with them. We get to learn from them. And from that, the spiritual growth happens. But I, I fully believe that, that groups and about bringing people together, it's all about relationships, especially in a place like this where we're so transient. Um, I mean, that's not just our church. It's probably every single church in the D.C. metro area. You're here for a year, three years, five years, ten years. I mean, some of you, you're crazy. You stay here for 30 years, whatever it may be. But, but you know, we're here, and, and why we're here, why not build these relationships and grow together? And so in the past, kind of what we've done here, and this is the case for most churches, and I know this because uh, when I moved here five years ago as the associate pastor and I was in charge of groups, um, we kind of just kind of take it's like spaghetti, throw it up on the wall, you hope a few things stick, right? So it's kind of the same thing. We're like, hey, we're going to throw these 15 groups up on the wall and see what sticks. Great, we got four groups out of this. Wonderful, let's keep moving on. It's really kind of messy, and there's not a real purpose behind that in some ways. We're just trying to get people connected in some way. And so we know, we understand that one of the big holes that we have as a church is just helping people build relationships with each other. And so this fall, what we are doing, we are putting together these community-centric groups. Uh, You can call them micro-churches if you want to. You can call them little churches, little communities, whatever you you want to do there. But anyway, what this means is we're trying to bring people together who live in the same areas. Because before, you know, you might have lived out in Mount Vernon and your group was over in Burke. And let's just be honest. I mean, before COVID, you weren't going to that group, right? I mean, because you had to travel all the way across the, the parkway and you didn't know what the traffic is going to be like and you're tired after the day. And so it's just hard to do. So when you've got something going on with your house at Mount Vernon and all your groups over in Burke, those Burke people love you, but they're like, hey, um, if you need something, come out our way, right? We, it's going to be hard for us to get there. It's just it's hard to build these, these lasting long-term relationships when you, you live so far apart. Or, or maybe for groups, what we've kind of found is everybody in your group is the same. You know, you, you've got dual income, 2.5 kids. You've got one dog. You've got a white picket fence. And it's like, wow, everybody in our group is the exact same person. This is crazy. We don't want to have groups that are always the same, right? We, we want to see our groups definitely be diversified, but we want to, want to see them be connected where you live. And this pandemic has really brought us to that place. See, we, we've looked around like, hey, the, as a church, we've done a great job as best we can trying to help you when, when tough times came, when, when you were sick, maybe when you were dealing with death because of COVID, whatever it may have been. But we really want to see people build relationships with each other close to where you live. And so this fall, again, we are doing something a little bit different, and we'll give you a couple of things here. First, on September the 12th, after our second service, we're having our fall kickoff party. After our services out on the grass outside here, we're going to provide lunch. We'll have some fun activities. But in the past, it was like, hey, it's a free-for-all. You just go figure out who you want to go hang out with and talk to. We really don't care, right? We did care, but, you know, it's kind of hard to maneuver at that time, you know, probably 250, 300 people in, in that setting. When you show up, if you decide to join us that day, when you show up that day, we will have tables set up or spaces set up, and on it, you'll find a location. 
So it may say West Springfield, it may say Lorton, it may say Mount Vernon, it may say Maryland. We're doing the whole state of Maryland, okay? We're just putting that all in one big, big fell swoop there. So sorry, Maryland people. But anyway, um, but that's not all. We're going to have all these different places, and we're inviting you to go to that table, to that space, to meet the people that are there, to eat with the people that are there, to connect with the people that are there, to hang out with those people. And here's the cool thing. Honestly, if you just meet people that live in your area that are part of the journey and you build a friendship from that, that's almost good enough for me. We want you to know people where you live that are part of the journey. We want you to be known and to, to know others. And so this is such an important thing for us. So we hope you'll be a part of that. But here's the other thing. We really want to have small groups or life groups or jail groups or connection groups, again, whatever you're used to, in those areas too. Uh, but it's going to take some, some people to be a part of that. As you sat down today, hopefully these were on your seats, these cards here. And it says, sign up to be a life group host, leader, or apprentice. And so here's what we're inviting you to do. We're inviting you to fill this out if you want to, and you can drop it in the offering box that's in the back here. I think there's one in the lobby. You can drop it off at our guest tent, or you can just take a quick camera shot of this QR code. It should take you to a form, which would be great. You can sign up there. Uh, we get your information quickly and digitally, which was even better. But um, we're looking for people who will host groups that you'll open your house to groups. We're looking for people who are interested in being leading groups. We're looking for people who want to know how to lead groups and would be apprentices for groups because we truly want to see relationships deepen here. Uh, to such a place, we, we continue to have these relationships way beyond just whatever our time may be here in this particular part of our country. Now, some of you think about groups and you're like, man, I don't know if I've got 52 weeks because don't these groups meet 52 weeks a year? No, we don't do that here at The Journey. Uh, during the fall, we're looking at about eight to ten weeks that your group would meet there. In the spring, probably around that same ten-week number. During the summer, a lot of our groups take off because people are traveling all over the place. But they still get together maybe once a month and hang out, spend time together. We're working on some big plans for all of our groups. But, but if you would like to know more about this, if you want to be a part of that. Now, if you want to be a part of a group, don't let us know right now. That's not what I'm asking. What I'm saying is if you want to help and be a part of one of these three things, Please let us know, and over the next couple of weeks, we'll get in touch with you, and we'll tell you a little bit more about what this looks like. Because, again, we just want to see people build relationships. But the reason is, we go back to the story, is because Barack, he was afraid to take these steps. And the only reason he did that was because he had Deborah there to be with him, to help him, to support him, to encourage him. And you know what? You and I need encouragers in our life, too. So she is there to do that with him. Look at verse 12. It says, When Caesarea was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Herosheth Hagayim to the Kishon River. We're going to put an image up here on the screen. This is actually Mount Tabor, or Tabor, sorry. We had a Mount Tabor High School where I grew up, so I, if I say Tabor, I'm sorry, but it's actually Mount Tabor. But, um, here on Mount Tabor, you can kind of see it. I mean, you can see everything from this place, right? You can see all over the, the, the plains that are, are there. Now, back in those days, the, the way that they would fight was very much like how we see people fought during the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. They would go to sort of like where that plain is, where between those two um, urban areas. And they would show up there, they would face each other in these lines, and they would march towards each other, and they would fight. Well, Deborah comes up with an even better plan. She, she kind of starts something that uh, we know a little bit more about today. Uh, but God also intervenes in this, too. 
couple of things take place. First, Deborah's like, hey, this, this is a, a, pretty, a, a pretty good, well, let me, I'm getting ahead of my game here, all right? Let me, let me go back and read this in verse 14. Here we go. Then Deborah said to Barak, get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy the army all the way to Harasheth Hagayim, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. And, and so he, Sisera hears what the Israelites are doing, that they're up on this mountain. And so he goes to them. He thinks, man, we've got this one. We've got these chariots. This is going to be great. But Deborah actually says, hey, I want you to get up in this mountain area. Now, this mountain area is actually full of trees. There's a forest there, as you can tell in that image. And she kind of begins this whole thing of guerrilla warfare. She's like, this is how we're going to fight. We're not going to fight the normal way. We're going to fight a little bit differently. And so you've got these chariots that are now trying to kind of maneuver around these trees. Well, they can't really do that because they're chariots. But then if we, we go to Judges chapter 5, this is known as the Song of Deborah. And in it, it's a retelling. It's actually the, some of the earliest Hebrew poetry that we have. And in it, it retells the story and the events of that day. And part of it talks about the storm that comes. Now, you're in these heavy iron chariots. You're used to fighting out in the open. Now you're having to fight around these trees. And oh, by the way, the storm comes, makes the, the ground really mushy. It talks about some flooding that's happening there. These chariots can't do anything. They, they, they can't move, and so they can't fight anymore. You, you, you've got this Israeli army that's on their feet, and they're fast, and they're quick, they're mobile. And they're able to defeat Sisera that day because of the way that, that Deborah led and because God was in the middle of this. And in the end, she gets the glory for this victory. But there's another piece of the story. If you go and you read the rest of Judges chapter 4, you're going to see that Sisera, he runs, and he goes to an ally's tent. And he gets there, and his ally's not there, but the wife of the ally is there. And so he goes inside. Sisera goes inside. She welcomes him in. He's worn out. He's tired. He's been running. He falls asleep there on the floor of the tent. She puts a blanket over him, and then she grabs a tent peg, which isn't this big. It's big. She grabs a hammer. He's asleep on his side. His temple is there, and I'll let you read it or figure it out for yourself what she does, all right? So women not only get one victory, they got two victories that day because she stopped the oppression of Sisera, and Deborah was able to help alleviate the tensions and the oppression from the army of the Canaanites. And so she reigned as a judge in peace for 40 years. You look at this story, and there's so much here, but one of the things I love about Deborah is she is so bold. I, I love her boldness. In this very male-dominated society, she is this leader, and she is bold. Now, maybe she's ambitious. Uh, maybe she's got this incredible type A personality. I mean, there's all kinds of reasons that she may have been in this role, but, but here's why I believe she was in this role and why she was so bold. is because of that relationship she had with God. Like she had this incredible connection to God. So when God told Deborah, when God said, hey, Deborah, I need you to go do this or go tell this person this or make this happen, Deborah wasn't like Barack. She didn't just sit back and like, yeah, I don't know about this right now. Let me think about this. I'm going to be cautious. I wanna, I'm going to hesitate. I, you know, I've got all this fear. She doesn't have any of that. 
God speaks to her, and boldly, she then goes and makes those things happen. I want us to think through this question as we go about our week this week, as we look at someone like Deborah. I want you to ask yourself, are we being bold? Are you being bold? Because I wonder what would happen if more of us would have listened to what God had to tell us. And if God says, hey, this is where I want you to go. This is the person I need you to talk to. This is the direction I need you to move to. This is where I need you to, to move your family, whatever it may be. If, if God was really there, we, we were really listening to, to what God was saying to us. How would that change our lives if we actually live that kind of boldness out? And we heard God, and we took that first step of baptism. We heard God, and we took that next step of, of talking to that person. We heard God, and we went, and we supported and encouraged that person who needed that. What if we began to live our life in that way? And we were bold because of that faith we have in Jesus. Barack wasn't bold, but Deborah was. And Deborah listened to what God had to say, and she did what God said, and incredible things happened because of that faith that she had. Paul writes these words in 2 Corinthians 3.12. He says, therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And that hope comes through Jesus Christ. Do you have that kind of hope? Are you holding on to that kind of hope? Because, look, that's what should, that's what should motivate to live our lives the way God intends for us to live our lives. Because we have this connection to Christ. Because we follow Jesus, we have this hope. We can be bold in our lives moving forward. We can be bold when that fear is present. We can be bold when, when someone needs that encouragement. But we can be bold to live the life that God intended for us to live. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. My prayer is that you and I can be very bold because of the hope we have in Christ. And just like we see here in our one-hit wonder, Deborah.